This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Tonight's reading uh, comes from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Take a second to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's an extra copy probably in front of you in the pews. That's Luke 7, 36 through 50. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And the woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating at the Pharisee's house, brought him an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, and that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love, but the one whom little is forgiven, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. We're looking at the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, I've said this many times before, but the main image of the kingdom of God that Luke f- 
focuses on, and I assume Jesus also focused on, is the year of Jubilee. It's the Jewish year of Jubilee. So every 50 years in Israel, uh, they were to blow a trumpet and all debts were canceled, all slaves were free, and peace was restored to the land. And that's, uh, that's what Jesus thought was the, the best model, um, little scale model for what he was bringing on earth when he came, the kingdom of God. And um, we see that in this story, which is this stunning cancellation of debts. Um, the way this woman understands that, perhaps better than anybody else that you see in the gospel, just aware of what the cancellation of debts, the freedom, the, the freedom from guilt, the, uh, the lack of slavery um, to debt. You see it in verse 41 in this parable that Jesus tells, which is the center of the whole passage. Uh, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed $70,000. That's roughly what that's saying. It's more than a year's salary. The average salary in America is around $56,000. $70,000 debt. The other owed $7,000. Neither could pay. Uh, it's very important to know that they were both equally helpless and hopeless in their attempt to repay. They, they had no good works. They had no money. They had nothing to bring to the table whatsoever. Even the one with a smaller debt... Neither could pay, and so the gracious moneylender canceled the debts of both. And Jesus is saying that I came into this world to do that. Um, whether you think your debt is 7000 or $70,000, um, he's saying I came into this world like this gracious moneylender to cancel all of your debts and to free you from that uh, lifelong paralyzing debt slavery that we're in. Not financial debt, of course, but, but spiritual, moral Bankruptcy that we all wander around in. And I think the question for us in reading this passage is simply, uh, which of them is, is the hero? Is it Simon or is it the sinful woman? Uh, it's in verse 42. Which has the greater capacity to love? And that's really what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is about responding to um, the year of Jubilee uh, with this kind of response. I don't know of a better response in the Gospels, this, she gets at this woman. Um, interestingly, the woman is not named. She's a no-name. Luke's very careful about that. Uh, he wants us to know that she's a nobody. That she's uh, what they would consider the scum of the earth. The bottom of the barrel. Um, she was a woman of the city. And Luke wants us to know that. And on the other hand, Simon is a, a paragon of virtue. Uh, he's a pillar of the community. He is a religious leader. He's revered. He's hosting Jesus. And yet, in this amazing reversal, which is so common in the Gospels, she is exalted and, and he is debased. Um, she is the one that is shown to be uh, filled with love as a response to the Gospel. Um, the way that she worships God in this passage is absolutely stunning. Just giving everything to God. Whereas he is kind of suspicious and uh, questioning and analytical. He won't commit. So those two things, uh, Simon first and then the sinful woman. Um, verse 36 is the setting. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now the Pharisees, we have to be careful about the Pharisees. They're not bad people. They were not... Um, Evil and uh, all they were not all moralistic, they were not all self righteous, they were not all judgmental, 
Um, Pharisees took the Bible very seriously. They, they tried to apply it to their lives. They uh, fought hard against all the idols of Rome. They were especially, uh, especially countercultural in their sexual ethics. Uh, whereas Rome is kind of anything goes, uh, promiscuity, unbridled, unbounded, degraded. The, the Jews, the Pharisees especially, uh, really tried to adhere to the, uh, the, 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 the chastity that you see in the Old Testament. Commitment to chastity in the Old Testament. So they were very, they were pushing back hard. They were fighting hard against their culture in this way. And that's why Simon is so upset here. Because Simon has gathered uh, all of his friends, all the dignitaries of the city. They're all there to, to host Jesus, to see what he's like. They're trying to figure out, is he a prophet? Is he not a prophet? They've heard mixed reviews. And then all of a sudden, right in the middle of this gathering, there's this outbreak of impurity. And... Verse 37 says, a woman of the city was there. And a woman of the city is almost certainly um, shorthand for being a prostitute. And so this notorious woman is suddenly not only in his house, but right at the center of the banquet. They're reclining at table. They're eating their second course or whatever. And here all of a sudden, at the feet of Jesus, the guest, there's a woman. And not only is she... In the house, but her hair is down. Um, that would have been unthinkable back then. It was compared to being topless in one of the uh, commentaries. And she's also kissing his feet. And these are scandalous, suggestive acts that Simon um, must have been absolutely desperate. He's so appalled that he doesn't just judge her. He judges Jesus for allowing this. And it says in verse 39, this inner monologue of, Simon, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what this woman is like who was touching him and that that she is a sinner. And you can hear the anxiety in his thoughts there. Um, There's so much at stake for him. You know, her long hair is unleashed in his his dining room and her tears are forming a pool on the floor of his house that he tries to keep so clean. And her perfume is filling the room with this exotic fragrance her tools of the trade. And Simon is just feeling the horror of this event. And you can imagine his, his face must be red with shame and humiliation. Um, there's nothing that I can quite think of to compare it to exactly. Um, maybe if your fiancé is coming to meet your family for the first time and you're, you're excited, you're a little bit nervous, you're excited that you're going to introduce them to your parents. And then uh, when they come over, they're, they're tipsy, maybe a little drunk, and they're cursing and they're cracking sexist jokes and maybe they're hitting on your brother or sister and they're make, maybe making racist slurs something like that and you would be absolutely mortified and appalled and that's not even really at the same level of what simon is feeling his anxiety just erupts like a volcano where he says she's a sinner doesn't say it out loud but that's what he says about her that's how she he sums her up you know not a creature made in god's image um Not a child of the king, not a sister, daughter of Eve, but a sinner. And he's thinking about her as beneath him socially. Certainly, uh, socially, she's, again, she is uh, shunned in the city. He is respected. She's below him, even physically. He's up here, she's down here. Uh, She's beneath him morally. He's devout. She's a pariah. She's dangerous. And that's the setting where Jesus comes in and he just completely flips this narrative 
on its head in a way that is almost more stunning than the woman's act itself because Jesus frames the whole thing in a brand new way. With this story, he just sets up a whole new way of looking at this. And, and that's how he does with everything in our lives. He takes these things that happen to us in our lives and he reframes them. And so that we see them in a new way with a new frame around them. And, and he, what he's saying in the kingdom is that uh, life is not about trying to minimize your moral debt before God. There's, a, there's of course, an, a desire that we should have to be uh, moral, righteous, upright people, to be holy people. But the main motivation is not to minimize your debt before God. Uh, the, the main thing we're supposed to be doing is, is raising awareness all around us, in ourselves, but all around us, of not only our own debt, but also the perfect pardon of the gracious moneylender. That's what the kingdom's about. And she gets that. She gets that in the kingdom, life is about gratitude and hospitality and opening yourself up. And that Simon is the opposite of that. As virtuous as he is, he's used that virtue like a weapon, like a shield to keep God at arm's length. And he has not been cracked open. He has not become open to hospitality. He he, he has not welcomed Jesus into his life. Uh, Verse 47, he is forgiven little, loves little. You know, he questioned whether Jesus was a prophet. And now Jesus says, I'm going to get prophetic on you, Simon. And he basically exposes the appalling lack of hospitality that Simon has shown him. Verse 44 says, you gave me no water for my feet. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil. These were customary acts of hospitality for anyone anyone entering your house, much less an honored guest. Uh, back then, hospitality was a big, big deal. It was much bigger than Southern hospitality. It was about um, welcoming strangers in lavishly. And this is such a slight to Jesus that it, it's, again, it's very hard to imagine something similar. I mean, think about the most famous person you've ever had over to your house. Um, it's probably, it's way beyond that, but you know, um, if the senator, if your local senator came over, if Richard Burr came over to our house and we were uh, just kind of sitting around the table with paper plates, we ordered a Domino's pizza and, you know, we, we heard him knocking and we just kind of said, come on in, come on in, Richard, come on in, Rich. And then he like opens the door and our dog runs up and jumps on him. Um, the level of inhospitality there really pales in comparison to what is happening with Simon here. Simon is showing... No respect. There's no gratitude. There's no hospitality. And of course, this is what Luke is saying to us. He's holding up Simon to us and saying, are you grateful? Are you hospitable? Are you grateful for the cancellation of your enormous moral debt to God? Because Simon clearly was not. And I think more than the woman, we're often testing and analyzing whether someone is up to standard or not, they're safe or not safe, they're good or bad, good guy or bad guy. A lot of inner dialogue, inner monologue of critique, talking to ourselves about whether this person is up to our standards or not. It's a lot of that, a lot more of that than you know, weeping at the feet of Jesus. Um, and it takes a toll on people around us, this inner 
inner thinking of uh, judgment, um, of self-righteous analysis that's going on in Simon's head. Uh, your, your friends feel it, your husband, your wife feels it, your children feel it. Whenever we enter this mode, you haven't said anything, but still, there's, there's judgment going on. And um, in reading the story, I mean, I was very aware of that this week, of trying to think about myself and the times that I uh, enter into these modes of judgment and just start to carry on in my mind about uh, judging this or that person. I don't even remember who I was judging, who I was uh, criticizing in my mind. When I say judging, I don't mean just discerning whether something's right or wrong. I mean thinking of that person critically over and over and over again and kind of mulling on or chewing on their negative traits and how I'm better than them. And um, Luckily, I went in to brush my teeth in this moment where I was judging this person. Uh, again, I don't even know who it was. It's so frequent. But I, um, I, I opened up, you know, the, uh, I opened up the, the mirror and then closed it. Our, my toothbrush and toothpaste is behind the mirror. I closed it and I saw, I saw myself. I saw myself doing it. Um, I'm not a huge fan of looking at myself in the mirror, so that was hard enough already. But then when I saw myself judging someone, um, it really, it, I thought of Simon immediately and how lacking in hospitality uh, those judgments are. And uh, I just thought to myself, who do you think you are? Like, what kind of being do you think you are that you have the right to do these things? I actually had a vision in my mind of a maximum security prison. All these inmates have been suddenly pardoned, like a governor or a president just pardons everyone. And so everyone's free to go, and they line up to get out of the prison, and um, they're kind of jostling in line and pushing each other to see who gets first in there. You know, like, how dare you break in front of me? Get back behind me. All these debts completely forgiven, all this liberation, all this freedom, and yet they're just stuck in their heads judging each other. I feel like that's the way it is a lot of times among Christians, that we, we are all completely forgiven, debt-free, living debt-free, and yet so little gratitude, so little hospitality, so much judgment. That's Simon. He who is forgiven little loves little. Verse 47, and now the sinful woman, whose debt, by the way, we cannot assume was $70,000, whereas Simon's was seven. That's not, that's not a, um, a good exegesis of this passage. It's not, he's not saying that, that her debt was actually higher. It's just that she knew it was higher. In fact, when you really think about the virtue, the character of these two people, it would be his debt that would be higher. It's just that she knows that she's been forgiven much. And so he says in verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. Now, you've got to be careful with that, that statement because when you read that and take it kind of literally, uh, grammatically, literally, you, you would think that it's saying that you are forgiven on the basis of how much you love. And so if you love a lot, you're forgiven a lot. If you love a little, you're forgiven a little. That's not what it's saying. And I think that's a bad translation. A better translation is uh, from the Good News Bible. I tell you then that the great love that she has shown proves that her many sins have been forgiven. Proves that it. The love is just a sign that she gets it. And so if there's a lack of gratitude, a lack of hospitality, a lack of love for God, that just shows you you don't get it. You don't understand. You haven't received uh, the size of your debt that's been forgiven. 
And her great love is ignited when, when the size of her sins, her many sins, come into contact with his forgiving words and explode. That's how, that's how gratitude is created. That's how hospitality is created. That's how your judgments are destroyed. When, these, when this collision happens, and it, it's got to happen again and again and again. And I feel like I kind of, in some ways, tell, tell you all this every week. But, and it seems like, um, you know, that's, that's nothing new. I've, I've known that my whole life, that I'm this I'm a great sinner, I'm this great savior. Well, that, that has to just keep happening again and again and again. And reading the Bible, and prayer, and worship, and talking to other people. It's just the way we live. The same gospel that saves us continues to sanctify us, and transform us, and change us. But when her sins that she's aware of come in contact with her Savior's words, this happens. This gratitude happens. And this, this had to happen before the banquet, by the way. Because when she comes to the banquet, she already knows. I mean, he forgives her at the end. He says your sins are forgiven. But he does that not because she didn't know that, but because he wants them to know that. He wants them to know that she's been forgiven. But earlier on, somewhere in the city, somewhere that day... Maybe she was looking for him. I don't know how they came across each other. I don't think they just bumped into each other. They just took a turn and hit each other. I bet she was seeking him. Uh, I bet she knew that there was this man who she had heard of. That's a, he's a miracle worker. He's a healer. He's not like anyone you've ever met. He's not like the Pharisees. Not like the scribes. Not like the Sadducees. And so she has this crazy hope that maybe if she met him, maybe her life could be restored. Maybe she could be brought back into the community of the people of God in the synagogue. and So she has this hope that maybe he can release her and, and cut away her massive debt that just clings to her, like a big you know, backpack full of just filth. And he's just, she's hoping that maybe uh, somebody could take that away from her. And then she finds him, and he sees her, and he says to her, uh, your sins are forgiven. Your sins, though many, have been forgiven you. And the thing that's a miracle is when she believes it. And I just wonder how often we believe it. I mean, we know it. You hear it all the time, but do you believe it? Your faith has saved you, he says to her. It's that, it's that moment where she realizes that actually the straps have been cut off. The burden has fallen away. She's light as a feather. She's, she's no longer seen by God as a debtor. She is no longer perceived by God as one who is... Filled with sin. But at that moment, for her, she got it. I don't know how she knows that so well, and we don't know that very well, but maybe it's because she was so broken and so aware of her debt. But somehow, when, when his words encounter that, uh, she just kind of explodes with gratitude. And uh, she does this amazing thing where she, she runs home, probably sprints home. You know, feeling like she's never felt, or maybe not since she was a child, just all the weight of the world off her shoulders. She sprints home. Uh, she grabs her most precious item. She's thinking, how in the world can I love this man? How, what can I do to possibly express my love for this man? So she grabs her alabaster flask of ointment, verse 37, which was, again, probably one of the tools of her trade. This is how she made money. It was a very vulnerable thing for her to do, and she... She finds uh, her alabaster flask. She's then trying to find out where he has gone. Where is he? And so she finds out and she runs and she marches right into the house. And that's, really, that's probably the bravest thing she did. is just to in, enter the house at all. 
Um, it would have taken incredible courage to go in there and know that how much she would be judged by these very important men. But she does it. She does it knowing. Uh, last year, I was invited to a, a lunch, and I thought it was a casual luncheon. And so I went in wearing running clothes, and everyone was in suits, and the mayor was there. And, uh, and then Kelly Carpenter, the person who invited me, the pastor of uh, Green Street Methodist Church, he said, come on down in front, Ben, there's a seat for you right here. I was trying to kind of sit on the back, and then he invited me to the very front, and everyone saw me. And it was mortifying. And she is doing something a thousand times more mortifying. But she knows she's doing it. I did it unwillingly. She did it willingly. And I can just imagine psychologically for a person to do this, their mindset must have just been all about him looking at her. The only way she could keep going is if she thought about the way he sees her, not the way they saw her. She had to be thinking about the way Jesus saw her. That had to be foremost in her mind. That he sees her as a new creation, uh, forgiven in Christ, completely righteous in Christ. And she walks in on the sea of his love, just buoyed up by his imagination for her. And then she walks right behind him. She doesn't just slink along on the edges. She walks right behind him in verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping. And she falls to her knees, uh, sobbing uncontrollably. The only kind of tears that would ever create enough moisture to be able to wash his feet with her hair. She lets down her hair, which would again have been mortifying. She lets down her hair. She takes her tears. And then she cleans the dirtiest part of him with, in some ways, the cleanest part of her. Not only her hair, which again was a very important part of her sense of herself, but, but her lips. She kisses his feet with her lips. And puts her perfume on him. Verse 38, wetting his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair. Verse 38, kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. I I just don't know if I've seen anything quite like that before. That passion of the worship there. The only thing I ever see that comes close to a sporting event, which is really sad. But I have seen men at sporting events fall to their knees and weep and, uh, and raise, or raise their hands and, and dance. People who would never dance uh, will lose control and hug strangers and stuff like that. And it just makes you wonder, what is, where is the energy coming from? And why is the energy not here? You know, why do I not, in worship, have that same energy uh, to dance around and hop around and cry and kneel? You know, why don't we love God like that? And I think that the answer can only be that uh, whoever has been forgiven little shows only a little love. That we think we have a smallish debt, maybe an inconvenience to God, $7,000. Pretty cool that he forgives it. Not a huge deal. Not too costly for him. We once actually had a $100,000 debt that we incurred um, when we were living in Princeton, New Jersey. And I had a heart attack. Um, Fell to the floor in basketball, uh, and next thing I know, we have a $100,000 debt, medical bills. So I thought, you know, I'm in seminary. I'm not going to make any money. I have a $100,000 debt. We're going to be in debt slavery the rest of our lives. Uh, we're not going to save any money. We're going to have no retirement, uh, not be able to take big vacations ever. Um, and I was, it was, I was a little bit, well, I was very panicked by that. 
and my health was compromised. So um, somehow, I don't even remember how, but there were different people involved, many different people, uh, many of whom we didn't know. Someone slid a $10,000 check underneath our door. We didn't know where these things were coming from. But when it all came in, and again, we didn't really ask anyone. Uh, We just prayed. We asked people to pray for us. Uh, But the seminary community, other friends, family come together. And it turns out that the amount we get is $40 more than what we owed. And we took that as a date. We said, I think that's what we get for our troubles is the $40 date. Um, And Jesus doesn't just leave us, you know, $40 for a date. He not only cancels our debt, but then he gives us his own $100,000 of righteousness. He doesn't just leave us kind of neutral or even. He completely restores us to the fullest kind of wealth. He turns to the woman, which itself is an act of dignity, that he makes everyone turn to her. And that he even tells Simon to look at her, to acknowledge her full humanity. She's not just a sinner. So he gets everyone to attend to her. And even in doing this, he is he's beginning to lift her up. She's not a nobody. She's not a no-name. She's a daughter. She's one of your sisters. And then uh, he restores her to shalom. In verse 50, he says, go in peace. First he tells him she is forgiven. Okay, so all you know, she's forgiven. And then he says, shalom to her. In other words, you have your initial well-being from Eden, your unfallen uh, Eve-like status of complete well-being and shalom. It's back to you. You have peace. Go in peace. He restores her. He lifts her up. And he gives her unimaginable riches as he later on will take her immeasurable debt. And that's this exchange we see at this table where we realize that um, all the backlogs of our bills that we're, even today we added to, we added to the total of what we owed. And even today you've added a little guilt into your consciousness of what you did wrong, what you haven't done was good. Um, And all of our self-talk, all of her self-talk that she's thinking I'm dirty, I'm lustful, I'm unclean, I'm disgusting, I'm a uh, sex object, all that, uh, Jesus says, no, peace. That's not who you are. None of that's who you are. I give you peace. And in this table, he's saying, here are my riches, and I'd like you to take those, and then I'm going to give you my righteousness. And I'm going to take your sin. And so uh, on the night that he was betrayed, really our worst night.